How many of you have vacation plans for the summer? A few of you got them locked in? You have your reservations and everything, huh? This is the time of year, isn't it? Vacation season is upon us. We're here in the middle of July, in the height of the vacation season. Summer vacations are uh, are time to build memories. It's a great opportunity to do that. When our children were young, we would do camping, and uh, we often would do beach camping because um, it's just a great environment to be there down by the water with the sand and the kids and, and a fire at night. It's just a great time. I can remember as a child myself going to the beach, and I have a memory of that that's not so pleasant, and that memory actually is a sort of a scary one, and that was I was out in the water with a flotation kind of device, and we were body surfing, you know, riding the waves, and I didn't realize that there was a, a tide that was in play there that was dragging me horizontally or parallel to the beach, and in the fun of it all, I lost track of where I was, and, and actually ended up quite a long distance down the the beach, so by the time I finally got out of the water, I was completely lost. I could not find my family. You know, they were on a blanket somewhere among hundreds of thousands of other peoples on blankets. And so it was a kind of a scary thing. And, um, you know, the spiritual life, if not properly attended to, can also drift. If you're not paying attention to your own spiritual life, you also can go adrift. And summertime, with family vacations and all of that, is a time when I think drift, the, the dangers of drift, is very, very high. You get busy, and the things of God somehow seem to get squeezed out of the way. Many of us know people, I'm sure, who once professed a very close allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, walked in what appeared to be a very robust and evident faith, but now have little or, or no real attachment to the gospel of Jesus Christ any longer in their lives. That which they once professed no longer seems to occupy a center place in their lives. The Greek philosopher Socrates, he once wrote that an unexamined life is not worth living. An unexamined life is not worth living. And I would add to this a corollary, and that is for those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, an unexamined life is exceedingly dangerous. It is exceedingly dangerous. Self-deception, beloved, is always a present threat, an ever-present danger. It's real self-deception. We are not saved by a profession of faith. We are saved by the possession of faith. It is, a, it is a present tense reality of the Christian life. And so it is really important to be regularly about the self-evaluation of our faith. Where do we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we believe? Do we believe that which we once said? I'm going to direct your attention to uh, the book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews, chapter 2 this morning, for a message I've entitled, Avoiding Spiritual Drift. Avoiding Spiritual Drift. Hebrews chapter 2, and we will look together at verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 2. 
And in the process of looking together at those verses, I think we can find three safeguards. Three safeguards that we must implement in our own lives so that we will avoid spiritual drift. Three safeguards to implement so that we might avoid spiritual drift. Now, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who the human author was of the book of Hebrews. We don't know the human author here, but we do know his intention in writing. He makes it very, very clear. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And these Jewish believers were facing persecution and with it the temptation to abandon their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to turn back to the Judaism that they had once uh, been, been part of, to turn back from Christ. And you can see this in just a couple of places here. I'll just locate you on it real quick. In chapter 10, for example, and uh, beginning in verse 26 where he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us but a terrifying expectation of judgment and so forth. This, this sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth that he's speaking about here is the turning from Christ, the turning away from Christ once knowing about Christ, once believing Christ, turning away from Christ is to put ourselves at the risk of a terrifying expectation of judgment. He goes on down into verse 31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see in chapter 13, in verse 13, if you wanted to put a a theme verse over the entire letter here, it would be here in chapter 13 and verse 13, where the writer summarizing really the book says, So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Let us go outside the camp to him, bearing his reproach. Now, back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is the first of a series of warnings. There are a number of warning passages in this book, and and some of them are, are actually quite terrifying. And through the years, I think, People have misunderstood them and, and have, from that, been you know, greatly unsettled. But these warning passages are here for a very specific purpose, and, and that is to cause the self-evaluation, the self-evaluation. And the flow of the argument here is, is simply this. In chapter 1, the writer has established the superiority of the Son. That is Christ. He has established the superiority of Christ over the prophets. That's verses 1 and 2. And he has also established the superiority of the Christ over the angels in verse 4. And then he pauses here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, to give a really strong warning, a very strong warning, and, and to apply the truth of what he has just stated about the superiority of the Christ. There are very practical consequences that he's going to articulate here that, about the reality that the new covenant is superior to the old, that the new is superior to the old. This new covenant, this revelation of the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, 
And because it's superior, it carries with it penalties for neglect that are heavier than those even associated with the old covenant. That's going to be his basic argument here. He is warning those who profess allegiance to Christ that if they yield to the temptation to turn from him, to to walk back their profession of faith and and to turn back to, to whatever it is they had come from, then they have placed themselves in a very hopeless situation. He's calling upon them and us to, in the words of Peter in 2 Peter 1.10, make our salvation sure. Make our salvation sure. So, three safeguards. Let's take a look at them together here. The first one is in verse 1, and it is simply this. We must pay close attention to the truth. The first safeguard to avoid spiritual drift is we must pay close attention to the truth. Notice how he begins here in chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason. For this reason. In other words, that which has gone before supplies the reasons. It is the context. It is the argument of chapter 1. And we could boil it down this way. Because Jesus Christ is... Chapter 1, verse 2, heir of all things. You see it? Because Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 2, is the creator of the universe. Because Jesus Christ, verse 3, is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Because Jesus Christ is the upholder of the material and the spiritual universe, verse 3. Because Jesus Christ, verse 3, is the final sacrifice for sin, and because Jesus Christ, verse 4, is the king seated at the right hand of the Father far above the angelic authority, because of these things, therefore, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard to what we have heard. This expression, what we have heard, is, is, is an elliptical expression. In other words, it's, it's a, just a compressed statement that carries with it a lot of meaning. In other words, they are to pay much closer attention to the things they have been hearing regarding the Christ, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say it this way, is they must pay close attention to the Christian faith and all of its doctrinal formulation, that which they have been taught about Jesus Christ, they must pay close attention to it. We're talking about the gospel, really. We're talking about the gospel. And the gospel is the moral remedy for our moral disease. That's why one must pay close attention to it. It is the only moral remedy for our moral disease. But this Remedy only becomes effectual in the lives of men and women and boys and girls when it is understood, when it is believed, and when it is acted upon. It must be understood, it must be believed, and then that faith must be an active faith. It must be acted upon. The argument here that he's making is essentially that because the messenger is greater the message is also greater. Because the messenger is greater, the message is also greater. Therefore, we must pay attention to it. 
close attention. Now, sometimes it's hard to understand, I think, how could it be that since both the law and the gospel, right, are, are God's revelation, then, and then in what sense do we say that one is greater than the other? How do we, how do we say that? And I, I think the point that he is, is driving at here is, is that when the gospel came, the Mosaic law had to pass away. You can't go back because it has given way before the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a superior messenger, right, superior, and he'll go on to argue he's superior to Moses and everybody else. Because he is the superior messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings the superior message. The old message has to fade away. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that, verse 1, we do not drift away from it. We do not drift away from it. Interesting word here, drift. It speaks of of things slipping away. It talks about slipping away. We must pay much closer attention here so that it doesn't slip away from us. This this word here, it's translated drift, drift away, is spoken of, of of a ring falling off of a finger. Okay, of, a, of, of losing a ring off your finger. It kind of it slips off your finger and, it, and you lose it, right? It drifts away. It's also spoken of a boat, a boat that is, that is um, swept along by the currents and it, it actually drifts past the harbor where there's any kind of a secure mooring. And the idea here is not simply forgetfulness, but there's with it a connotation of neglect, Okay, you know, playing with your ring all the time. Anybody do that? Yeah, you play with your ring all the time and then you can't find it. Okay, that's how it drifts away. Okay, just don't play with your ring and it won't fall off. If the boat is drifting past the harbor, it's because somebody's not paying attention to the oars. And that's the, that's the idea here. Is we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away, so that we do not miss it through neglect. He would say to, the, to his audience here, as I would say to, to us by application here, if we reject God's revelation in Christ, then there is no other safe harbor. There's no other place to go. There's, there's no other mooring for our soul, and certain catastrophe will come upon us. You know, most people who once expressed attachment to the Christian faith, they don't overtly blaspheme and turn their backs on God. I mean, it does happen, but that's pretty rare. Usually what happens is that people tend to slowly and almost imperceptibly drift into spiritual disaster. In other words, people don't have blowouts, what they have is slow leaks, and eventually they, they wake up one morning and the tire is flat because there's been this long process of neglect that has caused them to, to drift into the spiritual disaster. The readers here of this letter and us by extension, we need to heed the words of the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 9 verse 44, where he says, let these words sink into your ears. You're here this morning. Let these words sink into your ears. 
Let them sink into your ears. Beloved, you are either moving closer to the Lord Jesus Christ or you are drifting further away. Let me say it again to you. You are either moving closer to the Lord Jesus Christ or you are drifting away. We, it's, it, by the design of God, we're, we don't remain just in this fixed place. We are pursuing Christ or we have turned our backs on Christ. We are drawing closer to Christ or we are drifting away from Christ. Newsflash. The currents of the world are continually pulling at us. They are continually pulling at us. And, and so all you need to do in order to drift away from Jesus Christ is ignore this fundamental reality. Perhaps I could illustrate it this way. If you were in a canoe and you were trying to, to paddle upstream, as it were, as long as you have the, the oar or the, the paddle in the water and you're working at it, you will make progress. It's when you take the paddle out of the water, put it across your lap, and sit back and enjoy the scenery that you will find that you are drifting, that you are downstream. You are moving further from your intended goal, and that's how it is with Christ. We're either moving closer to Christ or we are drifting away. So, how, practically speaking, how do we help ourselves to pay closer attention? How do we help our children to pay closer attention to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I've got a few suggestions for you. All right, first, be an active listener. Be an active listener when you come to the preaching services on Sunday morning. In other words, don't daydream. Don't daydream. Not daydreaming takes effort. It is easy to daydream. I am an expert daydreamer. An expert daydreamer. When I was a child in school, that was a repeated um, teacher comment on my report card. David is a daydreamer. And to this day, that remains something that I must fight against. I can look out the window and I can while away the time, believe me. Believe me. So it requires active listening. Active listening. In other words, to sit up in the pew, have your Bible open, follow along, turn to the verses, read the verses, get the notes if that's helpful to you, follow along in the notes, take your own notes, do whatever you have to do so that you do not daydream. If you need to get up, by the way, and just pace back and forth across the back there, that's okay with me. It won't bother me. It might bother the people in the last row, but it wouldn't bother me. Do whatever you have to do. Do whatever you have to do to be an active listener. Secondly, take the time, take the time, make the time to read and ponder spiritual truth. If your input of, of spiritual truth, of the word of God, is basically what you get on Sunday morning, you're in trouble. You are in trouble. And you need to commit yourself to, to pursuing the scriptures outside of the Sunday morning. 
When we preach, we, we assume a, a base level of competency. I mean, Jesus all the time would say to the Pharisees, have you not read? Have you not read? There's an assumption, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are actively pursuing Christ through the Scriptures on your own so that when you come here, you have some raw material to work with. I said this to a number of people of late, husbands and wives, if I could give one gift to a married couple... If I had all the resources to give one gift to a newly married couple, here would be the gift I would give. I would give them a gift such that they would read the word of God together as husband and wife from the very beginning of their marriage. Not two people sitting in a room, he's reading his Bible, she's reading her Bible, but together they're reading the scriptures out loud back and forth one to another. That would be the gift I'd give. And for those that have been married a long time, I would give you that same gift. I would give you that same gift. There is nothing like it to to, um, act as an accelerant on your spiritual growth and to draw you together in the one flesh relationship of husband and wife. Please, listen to an old man here. Read the scriptures. Read the scriptures. And third, establish good and godly patterns in your life. Establish good and godly patterns in your life. These could be all kinds of things. Get up in the morning. Go to bed at a reasonable hour. Right? Come to church. Just there's so many basic things that, that you just need to establish. We live our life by habit. Okay? Lives are lived by habit. That's a gift of God. Establish good habits. Spirit. Uh, motivated habits, and it will help you so that you pay close attention to the truth. Second, secondly, this morning, we must fear the consequences of failure. We must fear the consequences of failure. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God is not hesitant to to use fear, even threat, to help his children walk in the truth. Throughout the scriptures, you just find over and over again these serious warnings. They are part of God's good gift to us. He loves us. And he thus speaks to us in very strong terms at times to pay close attention. Now look at this verse 2. If the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. This is an interesting statement. And uh, it's sort of one of those theological rabbit trails, which would have been great to ask Micah at his ordination uh, exam, see what he said. 
But we find a couple of places in the New Testament. For example, Stephen in Acts, we won't go there, but I'll just give it to you. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53. And Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. And they both assume the basic reality that the writer is speaking of here. And that is that the law was somehow given through angels. That the Mosaic law was given through the agency of angels. Now, the scripture is really remarkably silent on the hows and the whys of all of this. And so we can't really go anywhere with this, and it's not wise to speculate on these things, but, but there is this, this reality that, that at least three of these people understood and knew. If the word spoken through the angels, that is the Mosaic law spoken through the angels, right, is said to be unalterable. It is unalterable. And I think this reality is illustrated very simply in the Ten Commandments itself, right? The Ten Commandments, which kind of summarize the Mosaic law, were written by the finger of God on tablets of what? Stone. It's not that God didn't have any other writing materials. You understand that, right? They were written on stone because it it is a visual demonstration of the unalterable nature of these things. And it's become a common expression that we use. It's written in stone. It's written in stone. In other words, once the law was given, it doesn't change. It is unalterable. It doesn't change. Now, according to the writer here, the law can be broken in one of two ways, and both of them brought serious consequences. You see, for if the the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression, that's one way it's broken, and disobedience received a just penalty. In other words, the the law, this unalterable law, can be broken in one of two ways, and he's going to bridge from this reality to speak about the gospel. The first is transgression. Right? It can be broken by transgression. Transgression is a, is a positive offense. In other words, it's an overt act. It's to, it's to step across a line. It's to intentionally do something we know is wrong. For example, a transgression would be to see a sign that says, do not litter, and then to take a gum wrapper and... right. That would be a transgression. That would be an overt act of violation of a law. Okay, that's a transgression. Beyond that, he speaks about disobedience. Disobedience. And this, this is a different kind of offense, and a disobedience is, is a failing to heed an injunction. So that would include negative offenses as well. That, in other words, not doing something you're supposed to do would be disobedience. It has the idea of imperfect hearing due to deliberately shutting the ears or tuning out the command or, or the warning or the injunction. Kind of like when you say to your children, pick up your toys, and they're in the midst of playing, right? And you come back 10 minutes later and the toys are not picked up because they have tuned you out, right? In one ear, out the the other, exactly. Okay, so that's, a, that's disobedience. That's disobedience. And the consequences of it, the breaking of the law here, are, are just as unalterable as the law itself. Look at what he says. They received a just penalty. 
they receive the just penalty. So, in other words, you can't just say, well, I didn't hear you. I didn't, I didn't hear you. That doesn't fly with God. It doesn't fly. Okay? They receive the just penalty. In other words, they receive the punishment that, that fit the transgression. There was, there was an absolute correspondence between the offense and the consequence. And that's always true in God's economy. God's consequences always perfectly match the crime, right? Why? Because God is the one able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Human justice is at best a mere approximation. Divine justice is perfect because God knows the motives and thus the penalty matches exactly the motives. The more light a person has, the more severe the punishment for the refusal to obey the light that they have. Now, the sanctions that, were, that attended the Mosaic Law that was given in Mount Sinai, they were pretty severe. They were pretty severe, and, and they were inescapable. And let me just remind you of a, a couple of these to, to sort of for the shock value, okay? If I can do it that way. So just turn with me to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24, be reminded, because this is important to the, to the argument here, the progression of the argument. Leviticus 24, verses 14 through 16. Well, actually, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Leviticus 24, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Leviticus 24, verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. Okay, so there's an argument, and it leads to a, to a fight, a brawl of some sort. The son, verse 11, of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So in the midst of, of this tussle, he lets out a, a blasphemy, he, he uses the name of the Lord, and, and notice it's capitalized, or hopefully in your Bible it is. He blasphemed the name, and he cursed. He used the name of God, right? The third commandment, thou shall not, right, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. He breaks the third commandment here. So they brought him to Moses, verse 11. Now his mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. What are they going to do to a kid who's in the midst of, a, of an argument that gets, turns into a kind of a fistfight, a wrestling match, and in the, in the midst of his anger and so forth, he blasphemes, he curses, using the name of God, his opponent. Verse 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp. And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Wow, that seems harsh, don't you think? at least by our modern standards. I mean, we walk around all the time and people use the name of the Lord God as a, as a curse to right punctuate their evil speech. 
But the writer here says that the penalty matches perfectly the offense. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says, right? Well, what is the deep offense here? Well, the deep offense here is the violation, I said, of the third commandment. It is the violation of the third commandment. And, and so blasphemers it cannot be overlooked. They must be purged out from among the people of Israel, particularly at this stage, as they are leaving, you know, they've come out of Egypt and they're soon to enter into the promised land. They must be a holy people. They must be a people of spiritual purity. And so blasphemy is dealt with, and it is dealt with very, very strongly. Look at another one here over in Numbers 15. Numbers 15. Beginning in verse 30. Numbers 15, verse 30. But the person who does anything defiantly whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. Illustration. Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Death penalty. Death penalty for picking up firewood on the Sabbath. Why? Why? Because they had been told, right, that you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. You shall do no work on it. And because this man had defied that law, because he had defied that law, the death penalty is the appropriate consequence. Is God harsh? Is the God of the Old Testament harsh? Is that unfair, those kinds of penalties? Well, for a Christian, the answer is no. Not at all. Not at all. Is God easier on sin today? Is God easier on sin today? Not at all. Not at all. My sin and yours required the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to consider your sin rightly. See what the penalty it required. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, beloved, the, the temptation in this spiritual drift is to think I'm not so bad. I mean, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and look at what that person did. And when, we, when we're measuring ourselves by others, we have a crooked ruler. You want to see the seriousness of sin? Reflect on what it cost to deal with it. Back to Hebrews 2.
Verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received the just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect, neglect so great a salvation? The violation of the Mosaic law, which is inferior to the gospel, the old covenant inferior to the new, if that old covenant brought such terrifying consequences, such certain penalties, his argument is from the, from the lesser to the greater, he would say, well, then what should come to those who, who violate the superior revelation of Christ in the gospel? What do you think is going to happen if you walk away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you give in to spiritual drift, what do you think will happen? Don't presume upon the grace of God. Do not presume upon the grace of God. Do not adopt the policy, he'll always forgive me. He'll always forgive me. It doesn't matter what I do. He'll always forgive me. You're in the wrong place when you're thinking that way. You are now presuming upon the grace of God, and that is a dangerous place to be. Remember, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? The same God who is serious about sin in the Old Testament is the same God who is serious about sin in the New. Cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord. Cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord and the seriousness of sin. These are means to combat spiritual drift, to combat spiritual drift. Are we made right before God by our obedience? Of course not. We are made right by the obedience of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is not fire insurance. He's not a buy it and forget it policy. Sin is serious, very serious. And we need to think of it that way. So the first safeguard, we must pay close attention to the truth. Secondly, we must fear the consequences of failure. And third, we must remember the testimony of the witnesses. Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect the greatest salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These early believers, these Jewish Christians, I mean, think about their plight, as it were. They must turn their back on everything they have known to this point. Their entire religious experience, their, their culture, their families, the synagogue, all of this, they must turn their back on and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the so great a salvation that is spoken of here, the gospel. They have to, they have to abandon every single competing loyalty. 
A question that would naturally arise when faced with that kind of of investment decision is how can we be sure that we have the truth? How do we know? If I, to follow Christ, must pick up my cross and follow him, I cannot be his disciple unless I deny my, my father, my mother, my wife, my sisters, my brothers, my friends, everything, right? Even my own life. If that's the cost of discipleship, then how do I know the truth? How do I know that it's true? If it is true, it's an easy decision. But how do I know it's true? That's the decision they faced, and that's a decision every person faces. How do I know it's true? Notice how he answers the question here. Right? He says, you haven't heard Christ. You didn't didn't hear the gospel from him personally. You did not personally preach it to you. But you must still cling to it. And the reason you must cling to it is because there is an unimpeachable chain of witnesses. An unimpeachable chain of witnesses. This so great a salvation, this gospel, was first spoken through Christ. This is the first of the chain, as it were. All right, the gospel was proclaimed by the Son of God himself. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus himself first preached the gospel. But beyond that, he says, it was, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. In other words, the truth was confirmed to these individuals by people who had heard Christ. For example, the Apostle John. The Apostle John who writes in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy might be made complete. In other words, we were there, we heard it, we touched him, we saw it all. And we are in fellowship with God the Father through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be in fellowship with us, which will put you in fellowship with him if you heed our testimony. The testimony of the witnesses. When you go back to Hebrews, that's his argument. That's his argument here in Hebrews chapter 2. It was first spoken by Christ, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard. These are second-generation believers here. Well, how do we know those that confirmed it to us were reliable witnesses themselves? Right? Here's the chain. Jesus said it, these men heard it, they're repeating it to us. We've got this nice chain. 
But how do we know that they're reliable? How do we know they're reliable witnesses? Notice how he builds his argument here. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, verse 4, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. In other words, these witnesses were authenticated by God through various signs, through the charismatic gifts, the signs and wonders were to serve the purpose of authenticating the eyewitnesses who spoke of what they had heard and touched in Christ. Signs and wonders in the Scriptures are given by God in essentially only three periods of history. Do you know that? A lot of people think like miracles are going on all the time throughout the Bible, and that's really not true. There are, there are three great periods of miracles in the Scriptures. Three great periods when, when God breaks into his world and, and sort of violates, if I can say it this way, the, the way he set up the world to operate. Typically, God oversees and manages and directs his creation through providence, his hidden hand. But there are times when God breaks in. And he breaks in in order to bring some new revelation and authenticate the witnesses of that revelation. Oh, we got a couple of minutes. We're going to do it here. These three periods, let's just trace them really quickly. The first one is this. It is the deliverance from Egypt and the conquest of the promised land. This is the first period of miracles in the New Testament, and they're dense, they're compacted into this time period. And you can see this, I'm, you know, we're going to have to move here, but Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Deuteronomy 4, 34. Where God says, verse 34, or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? In other words, this in time of incredible miracles was happening as God was birthing the nation out of the womb of Egypt. You see it in chapter 6 and verse 22. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Chapter 34, verse 11. Chapter 34, 11. Verse 10, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, against all his service and, and all his land. For the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. How did they know that Moses was sent from God? Miracles. He did miracles. Now notice this. Go over to Judges chapter 6 and verse 13. Very interesting. Judges 6 and verse 13. Okay? The period of the Judges covers about 400 years. 
It follows after Joshua. Joshua continued as Moses is next in line, as it were, right? The Spirit was taken from Moses and placed upon Joshua. The period of the miracles also accompanied Joshua's early entrance into the land, right? Jericho, the walls fall down, all of that sort of stuff. Joshua's long day. But notice this. Joshua dies about 40 years. Joshua dies. We enter into the period of the judges. Take a look at this statement in chapter 6 and verse 13. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Our fathers told us about them. In other words, they are already a distant memory. They're not still happening. They're a long time ago. There's something that old men sit around and say, I remember when. The time of the miracles, it came and it went. The next great period of the miracles occurs about 500 years later in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. That's the next great period of the miraculous. And and when you read the accounts of Elijah and Elisha, it's incredible, right? All the things that are happening and and so forth. Well, what's going on in the history of the nation that would, that would bring these two prophets forward and their word would be confirmed by their, by their miraculous powers and abilities? It's simply this, that the northern kingdom was in danger of being eaten alive by Baal worship, of being completely consumed by the worship of Baal. And so God sent these two prophets to them. And and you see it with Elijah's confrontation, right, with the prophets of Baal, where where he proposes this this really incredible test to see who is the Lord in this thing. Who is God, right? And Elijah prevails. He prevails. So it is is a confrontation there when when the entire nation is at risk. So God sends his prophets, and he confirms them through the miracles. The third time in which we find this dense pack of miracles is really the time of Christ and the apostles. The time of Christ and the apostles when the kingdom is offered and rejected. When the, when the new covenant comes and the old must pass away. This results in the, in the birth of the church and the writing of the New Testament. And we see it here. Uh, just trace it again really quick. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 and verse 22. Acts two twenty-two. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. How do you know that Jesus is telling the truth? Well, one of the ways you know is by the miraculous power that accompanied his ministry. He was attested by God. Chapter 5 and verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. In other words, they were, these apostles were commissioned by Christ to, to continue the ministry of, of preaching the fact, right, that the new covenant has come. 
We know that, that they are sent from God by their ability to do the miraculous. Chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Well, Paul writes there, and he says, So then tongues are for a sign, not a prayer language, not a, not a private devotional language between you and God. Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. The miraculous here is a sign to certify the spokesman for God. You go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. How do you know Paul was a true apostle? Because he could do the same kinds of miracles that Peter did. And in fact, if you look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts breaks into two pieces. The first part is Peter. And all the miracles that Peter does and are recorded in the first part of the book of Acts, you see recorded in the second part of the book of Acts in the ministry of Paul. The book of Acts is a, is a certification of the ministry of Paul, and he better be an apostle. Why? Because the bulk of the New Testament comes from his pen. So he better be a spokesman for God. Back to Hebrews. Back to Hebrews. These believers here, they had not personally heard the gospel from Christ. But they had heard it from a trustworthy source, right? The testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, what about you and me? We haven't heard it from Christ. And we haven't heard it verbally from the testimony of the eyewitnesses, right? They're all dead. They're gone. But we have something even more sure, that's exactly Peter's argument in 2 Peter chapter 1, right? In verses 16 through 21. I'm not going to read it all to you. But notice what he says here. He says, verse 19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. He talks about the fact that we were on the mountain. We heard the voice of, the, of the, the majesty on high, right? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Peter says, we've got something far more sure than that. What do we have? We have the writings of the apostles. We have the writings of the apostles. Beloved, when we read, when we believe, and when we live according to their testimony, we have the anchor for our soul that we need to avoid spiritual drift. And we become another link in a very long chain that is passing on the life-saving news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to avoid spiritual drift? Thank God regularly for that person who brought the gospel to you. Somebody brought the gospel to you. Thank God for them. Don't lose sight of that reality. Become an active part of the gospel chain yourself so that others can thank God for you. 
Make a list. Make a list of all the people who would be hurt if you were to drift from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it. And let that provide an anchor for your soul. May the Spirit of God use the truth of his word to help each and every one of us in the middle of July to hang tight to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have sung about the gospel. We have prayed with regard to the gospel. We have read the scriptures together that speak of the the ethical implications of the gospel, and we have studied your word this morning with the warning passage about losing sight of it. The consistent theme, O Lord, this morning from beginning to end is how salvation is of the Lord. It begins with you. You reached out to us. You drew us to yourself. You opened our eyes to the beauty of Christ. Dear Father, as you have made us your children, we pray that we would be diligent and faithful children, not forgetful children. I pray for each and every one of us, in particular this time of year when when it seems as though uh, maintaining routines is more difficult. Let us not lose sight of of the daily disciplines of the gospel. Let us stoke the fire within our own souls. Let us encourage one another to to love and good deeds. And as the writer says later in Hebrews 10, and all the more as you see the day draw near. Father, we know we are saved by grace, not of works, but we know we are saved to good works. May you help us to take good stock of where we are. We ask in Christ's name, amen.